When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw That Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, Last Sunday, in the adult uh, Sunday school class, Brian introduced us to a man named Pliable as we've been making our way through Pilgrim's Progress. And Pliable and Pilgrim, they embark on their journey in this story. They leave a town, they leave a city, 
known as the city of destruction, and they're making their way for the wicket gate. And they're walking along this path together, pilgrim and pliable. They're not being very careful. They're not paying attention. And they get off the path somehow and they fall into a swamp. And this swamp is called despond. Pliable's had enough. Pliable climbs out of the muck. He climbs out of the mire. He climbs out of the mud. And he says, I, I, I'm out of here. I'm heading for home. And the question, the question that arises in my mind when I'm, when I'm struck as I come face to face with these two characters, Pilgrim and Pliable, is why is it that Pliable decides to head for home? The journey's just begun. They've barely started. I don't even know if they've made it a mile or two. And all of a sudden, without any hesitation, without any moment's uh, deliberation, Pliable says, that's it. I've had enough. I'm heading for home. Why? The answer is found in the words that Pliable speaks to Pilgrim as the two of them languish in the swamp, despond. He says, and please listen very carefully to this. He says to Pilgrim, is this the happiness you have told me of? Is this the happiness? You have told me of. In other words, I didn't sign up for this. When we left the city of destruction, I had certain hopes. I had certain plans. I had certain dreams. I had certain expectations. I thought this was going to be an enjoyable journey. I thought this was going to be a beneficial journey. It's neither. Here I am languishing in this mire, in this muck. I'm fed up. This isn't what I banked on. This isn't what I put in for. I'm heading for home. And yet Pilgrim persists, doesn't he? And Pilgrim eventually receives help and he's able to get out of that that swamp and he's able to return to the path and continue on his journey. And how do we account? How do we account for such a marked difference Such a drastic perspective or outlook. Pilgrim over here in his perseverance. Pliable over here in his disappointment and his willingness to return home at the first sight of trouble. How do we account for this difference? And the answer is simply found in the reasons for which these two men embark on the journey in the first place. Pilgrim begins this journey for spiritual reasons. He has read the Bible. He's read the book. He's come face to face with God's law. And the Spirit of God has worked upon his heart, has touched the inner recesses of his soul, and has shown him that he falls short of the glory of God. Has shown him in no uncertain terms that he is a sinner has shown him his need to find forgiveness, his need to find someone who can help him with that burden, that weight of his sin and guilt that he feels. And so he starts on the journey for spiritual reasons. But pliable, he begins this journey for carnal reasons. He hasn't read God's law. 
He isn't very well versed with the scriptures. He has no sense of his sin, no conviction for sin, no weight or burden of sin resting squarely upon his shoulders. His motives are simply carnal. What's in it for me? And at the first sign of disappointment, is this the happiness you have told me of? He heads for home. Pliable is an apt illustration of the crowd in John chapter 6. The crowd in John chapter 6 follows the Lord Jesus. Oh, there's such excitement. There's such enthusiasm. But by the time we come to the end of the chapter, the crowd is nowhere in sight. They have vanished. Why? Why? What's happened? What's what's taken place in these verses, in this scene, as it unfolds before the eyes of our imagination to account, to account for this crowd, this multitude, which at one moment is so filled with enthusiasm, seeking the Lord Jesus. And yet at the next moment has completely disappeared from sight. The answer is found as we make our way through the chapter in its entirety. Let me remind you, as I mentioned last Sunday, that this chapter has has three pretty obvious divisions. The first division is found in the first 13 verses. And in these 13 verses, we have a sign. The Lord Jesus miraculously feeds the multitude, the crowd, with five loaves and two fish. As we look at John chapters 2 through 12 in their entirety, we have an account of Christ's public ministry. And this public ministry focuses in on seven signs that the Lord Jesus performed before the people. This is the fourth. It is the fourth wonder, it is the fourth miracle, it is the fourth sign that gives evidence to the person that is the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The miracle, the design, the design of the sign is very simple. It is to reveal Christ's authority and it is to declare Christ's deity, who he is. He is the son of God. He is God. And so we have this account of the sign in the first 13 verses. And then we have in the second division, more or less verse 14, right through to verse 24, a response on the part of all these people. And look at their initial response in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That has an Old Testament context. The Old Testament context is Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses, the greatest prophet among men, told the children of Israel that God would raise up someday a greater prophet than him. And the Israelites had been expecting this second Moses. They had been expecting this second prophet. And upon seeing this sign, they conclude this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. There's excitement, there's enthusiasm, but it's misplaced. 
They think to themselves, they reason to themselves, aha, the second great prophet. Well, this prophet is going to act just like Moses. And just as Moses delivered us from under the burden, from under the tyranny of the Egyptians, so too this second Moses, this final prophet, is now going to liberate us, is going to free us from the, our oppressors, the Romans. Finally, we have this great political figure we've been waiting for, we've been longing for. All our dreams are about to be fulfilled. And look, this, this man is able to perform wonders. This man is able to satisfy our physical hunger. This man is able to do miracles. Surely this will be the man who will give us everything we want, who will restore the glory of Israel, who will restore us as a political entity. And the Lord Jesus knows it. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, their interests are carnal. Their interests are material. They are merely thinking in terms of the context of here and now. Here is a man who can give us what we think we need. Here is a man who can give us what we want. And so the Lord Jesus withdraws. And then there's this miraculous incident recorded in verses 16 through 20. When he appears to the disciples on the sea, they arrive at the other side. The crowds realize, verse 22, that the Lord Jesus is gone. And so they enter into a number of boats. Verse 23, they cross the sea to the other side. And so what do we read then in verse 24? So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And so they are convinced in their minds that the Lord Jesus is someone they want to follow. They're convinced in their hearts that the Lord Jesus is someone who they think can give them what they want, what they need. And so they pursue him, they follow him, they seek him. But then we come to the third division in the chapter. It begins really in verse 26. It goes all the way through to the end, verse 71. And here John records for us a discussion. And there are actually four phases to this discussion. In the first phase, the Lord Jesus speaks with the crowd, verse 26 through to verse 40. In the second phase, the Lord Jesus speaks with the Jews, verse 41 through verse 59. That's the Jewish religious leaders. And then in the third phase, verse 60 through to verse 65, the Lord Jesus speaks to the disciples. That is, that, that's a reference to those who are following him. And then fourthly, the Lord Jesus speaks, beginning in verse 67, to the twelve. And so we have this, this narrowing in terms of the scope, in terms of the focus, the crowds, the multitudes, the Jewish religious leaders, the disciples, the twelve, one of whom was a devil. And so we're left with this question, well, where did the crowds go? What happened to the crowds? Well, the Lord Jesus, as he enters into this discussion with them, beginning in verse 26, he points out to them that the reason behind their pursuit of him, the reason they're following him isn't spiritual, it's carnal. He declares in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Why? 
Not because you saw signs. In other words, not because you perceive the true significance of the signs. In other words, not because you perceive through the miracle I've just performed out of from five loaves and two fish that I am indeed the son of God. That's not why you're following me, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Your motives are carnal. Your motives are merely material. There is no spiritual hunger. There is no spiritual longing. There is no spiritual yearning. You're simply in this to see what you can get out of it. And so he challenges them in verse 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Do not be preoccupied with material concerns. Here is what is to be the focus of your attention and your pursuit. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. And so they ask him a question in verse 28. Okay, what must we do? Okay, you're telling us to labor for spiritual food as opposed to physical food. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What is this laboring? What does it involve? What are you talking about? And he gives them an answer in verse 29. This is the work of God. So that you believe in him whom he has sent. That just as physical bread is assimilated physically, so too you must assimilate spiritually the bread of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So they said to him, verse 30, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? I don't know if you use the expression here. My mother used to use it a lot with me years ago. The expression cheeky. Well, that's just downright cheeky. That's what's going on in this. That's just cheeky. There's no other word for it. What sign do you do that we would believe in you? What has he just done? What has he just done before their physical eyes? He's taken five loaves of bread, two fish. How many people here this morning? I don't know. But what could we do with five loaves and two smiths, two fish here this morning? Barely enough for me, let alone some other man here. We're talking about 5,000 men plus women and children. The Lord Jesus has taken five loaves, two fish, blessed them before their eyes, fed them, and then had his disciples collect 12 baskets full of scraps. Now they ask, what sign do you do that we may see? And believe you. Let me just insert a thought here, brothers and sisters. Let me insert a thought here. Man's problem is not proof. We often think it is. Oh, if I could just prove to someone God exists. If I could just prove to someone that Jesus rose again. If I could just prove to someone that God... Man's problem isn't proof. The proof isn't on trial. God's existence is not on trial. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is not up for debate. The truth of the gospel, whether it's true or not, is not the issue. The issue is not in the proof. The issue is with persuasion. Because man's heart is darkened and he believes what he wants to believe. And so Paul declares in Romans chapter 1 that since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen. It's not up for debate. It's not a question of proof. 
so that all are without excuse. What do you do to prove your claim you're the Son of God? What do you do to prove uh, us and convince us that we should believe on you? What sign are you going to perform? What has he just done? The issue is not a lack of proof. The issue is their unwillingness to believe, their unwillingness to acknowledge the obvious. Because of the darkness of their heart and their hearts being enslaved to sin. And so the Lord Jesus calls them out. Well, in verse 31, they, they carry on and say, here, here, this would be a real sign. Our ancestors, our fathers in the wilderness... Moses, he, he, he gave them bread from heaven. Remember that manna that fell each morning and they went out and collected? Hey, if you did something like that, then we'd really know you were who you claimed to be and we would believe in you. And the Lord Jesus calls them out. Verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. That was God who gave you the manna from heaven. But get this. My father now gives you the true bread from heaven. There now stands in your presence, in your midst, one who is sent from God, God's Son, who is able to satisfy your every spiritual craving and hungering. You find yourself dead in your sin. You find yourself racked with guilt. Come unto me is what the Lord, Je- Lord Jesus is saying. I am this true bread that has come down out of heaven. I am the one who can satisfy your spiritual longing. And yet their concern is material. Verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get it. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the problem. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You do not see the significance of the signs. You do not understand. You do not grasp. You do not take to heart the true character of the signs. You do not see who I am. But there's still hope. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so here we have in these verses this explanation as to why the crowds are there one moment and gone the next moment. It's simply this. They were following Jesus for the wrong reason. Following Jesus For the wrong reasons. And I submit to you this morning. That nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed. There is nothing new under the sun. And we see throughout the history of humanity. And we see today loud and clear. We see it. And we hear it. That man is willing to follow a Jesus that he molds and shapes in his own image. Man is willing to follow a Jesus who he thinks is there simply to satisfy his material carnal needs. And so ends up following Jesus for the wrong reason. Let me break that down for you with two truths. 
And I do pray by the Spirit of God we might take these to heart this morning. The first truth is this. People follow Christ without understanding who He is. All you kids, let me just give you a little prompt. That's where you to fill in that little blank in the bowl. And I see some of you adults are doing the same. Some of you have got a hold of those clipboards. People follow Christ without understanding who He is. They're just like the crowds. The crowds don't understand who He is. Oh, this is the prophet. This is the one who Moses pointed to. This is the one Moses spoke of. This is going to be some great political leader. This is going to be some great prophet. This one is going to deliver us from the Romans just as Moses delivered us from the Egyptians. And we see exactly the same thing today. A complete misunderstanding as to who the Lord Jesus is. Today, some people look at the Lord Jesus and they see a great philosopher. They think, well, there's a wonderful man who at one time walked among men, walked on the face of this earth, had some wonderful things to say, some great truisms and ethics and ideals. And so some people looked at him as a great teacher, a great philosopher. Others look at the Lord Jesus as a great humanitarian. He ministered to the destitute. He cared for the poor. He came alongside widows and orphans. He was a social reformer. He was a man full of compassion. We even have people running around today calling themselves, well, I'm a red-letter Christian. Oh, don't get me started. I'm a red-letter Christian. All I look at in the Bible are those parts in which we have red letters, the real words of Jesus. And that's what I'm going to follow. And Jesus is just some sort of haphazard social reformer, some sort of do-gooder, do-good-to-everyone, overlook sin. Well, that's what I'm all about. And they play fast and loose with the Word of God. And there are others who look at the Lord Jesus and they say, sure, there's a great prophet. One of a string of great prophets, right up there with Muhammad and Moses and Buddha and Confucius and all of these prophets. Well, they bring us something of the truth, but none of them, none of them has, has, has all the truth. What they give us are little snapshots. They give us little pictures of the big picture, but none of them has the complete picture. And so you do your best following Buddha. I'll do my best following Muhammad. Yes, you do your best following Jesus and we'll all get there in the end. And others look at the Lord Jesus and they see a great counselor. They see someone who can relate to their human experience, their human awareness, their human behavior. They see someone who can come alongside and simply help them through life, some sort of crutch. You know, if the Lord Jesus had been alive today, he would have written chicken soup for the soul, that sort of thing. Just just a counselor, just somebody who's there to help me get through life, nothing more. And we have all these false perceptions and images of the Lord Jesus out there, but none of them are options. The Lord Jesus, when it comes to his identity as to who he is, he doesn't leave us with a choice. Basically, I guess there are only three options when you think of the Lord Jesus. When you look at his signs and when you consider his claims, just his, his simple claim, I and my Father are one. When you hear the claims of the Lord Jesus and you see the signs of the Lord Jesus, you're left with only three options. One, he's a liar. Two, he's an absolute lunatic. Or three, he is who he claimed to be. He is God. But none of this nonsense, gibberish about him being a great philosopher or a great humanitarian 
or a great prophet or a great counselor. The Lord Jesus did not leave those things open to us. He gave us a very simple choice. Discard me as a liar and despise me. Pity me me as a lunatic and ignore me. Or prostrate yourself before me and worship me as the Son of God. Those are the only options. Those are the only choices. And yet we see people running around today just like this crowd in John chapter 6. Following the Lord Jesus for all the wrong reasons. The second truth is this. second truth is this. People follow Christ without understanding what He offers. Just as some people follow the Lord Jesus without understanding who He is, many people follow the Lord Jesus without understanding what He offers. They don't understand what's on the table, right? They don't understand what is being presented to them, what is being offered to them. The crowds, they're thinking carnally. Well, here's someone who can perform some pretty good miracles. We like that. Here's someone who can feed us and meet our every physical need. We we like that. Here's someone who's going to be a great political leader and and reestablish us as a nation independent of the Gentiles and all these foreign rulers and nations such as the Romans. We, we really like that. But the Lord Jesus wasn't offering any of those things. F.F. F. Bruce, as he comments on John chapter 6, he sums up the entire chapter in this statement. Listen carefully to it. What they wanted, that is what the crowds wanted, he would not give. And what he offered, they would not receive. Let me repeat that for you. What they wanted, he would not give. And what he offered, they would not receive. And it's precisely the same thing today. People follow Christ without understanding what he offers. So there are people, my intention isn't to be harsh, but my intention is to, to say it like it is. Uh, There are people who who follow Jesus, follow Christ, uh, because they want a miracle. I believe in miracles. I believe every born-again Christian here is a miracle. At one time you were dead, dead carcass, in your trespasses and sins, but by the almighty power of God, He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. That's a miracle. Miracles happen all the time. I believe God performs other miracles too. But my point is this, if we simply follow Jesus because we're looking for a miracle, we're looking to get something out of Him. We want to know what we can get from Him. That really really speaks volumes as to our motives. It indicates to us that our motive is purely carnal. Our motive is purely selfish. Augustine, the great church father, wrote, And he stated it so clearly, that love is adulterous. And the love of a harlot, which is greater to the gift than the giver. Think about that for a moment. Why do I love my wife? Because she cooks for me? Oh, I'd be in a whole heap of trouble if that's the only reason. 
because she does this for me, does that for me, or at least hope she will do this and that for me. No, there is something intrinsic in my wife that draws out my love for her. Why do we follow the Lord Jesus? Because we hope He's going to do something for us. We hope He's going to perform some great miracle in our lives. We hope there's some sort of trick with fish and bread. That's the love of an adulteress. Adulterer. That's the love of a harlot. Our love for God and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is not in the first instance stirred and motivated because of our perceived self-interest in Him. But it is stirred and motivated by our appreciation of who He is in Himself. There are others out there who follow the Lord Jesus because they, because they want heaven. I will explain that. <laughs> because they want heaven. I better explain that. We all want heaven. I want to go to heaven. Uh, don't misunderstand me. I, I'm speaking about that individual who reasons to himself, to herself, well, I, I think I believe in God. I think there is a, a heaven. Pretty sure there's a hell. Pretty sure heaven will be a nicer place. Heaven will be a nicer place to spend eternity than hell. So, I'll follow Jesus. That doesn't make me a Christian. That simply makes me a self-preservationist. That's all that makes me. That isn't what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That isn't what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That isn't what it means to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That has nothing to do with being born again from power on high. That is simply the act of a self-preservationist. Well, I'm pretty sure Grandma's in heaven. And I'm pretty sure I want to go see Grandma when I die. That is no reason for following Christ. That is simply a carnal, selfish motive. Others follow the Lord Jesus Christ because they're looking for health and prosperity. Given the state of evangelicalism within North America, I should perhaps spend a whole sermon or series of sermons on this. Health and prosperity. And so people twist the Scriptures today in order to turn them into a blank check. Just fill in what you want. And what God wants is that you be happy. What God wants is that you be healthy, wealthy, and wise. What God wants is that you have a life free of problems and troubles. What God wants is for you to be fulfilled and self-realization and achieve your full potential. What God wants is for you to have a good image of yourself and feel better about yourself. And on it goes and goes and goes. Gordon Fee writes, North American evangelicalism as a whole is currently being infected with an alien gospel, the cult of prosperity. In its more brazen forms, it simply says, serve God and get rich. In its more respectable forms, it builds $15 million crystal cathedrals to the glory of affluent suburban Christianity, where it says, God wills your prosperity. The pitch goes like this. It's in the Bible. God says it. So think God's thoughts. Claim it. And it's yours. That is gangrene. There is no other word for it. And it is a gangrene that has seeped in deeply within the ranks of evangelicalism. And it reeks to high heaven of carnality. What's in it for me here and now? What can God do for me to better my life? It is no different than the reason for no different than for the reason 
for which the crowds pursued Christ in John chapter 6. What's in it for me? And God simply becomes some huge rabbit's foot or some other lucky charm that we use who hope will give us all we want. And any notion of picking up your cross and following the Lord Jesus Christ lays by the wayside. Any notion of what it means to count the cost, any notion of self-sacrifice, any talk of mortification of sin, self-discipline, the pursuit of holiness, these are words that just never cross the lips. Because there is no real spiritual interest. It is simply the cry of a carnal heart. And others, I suppose, oh, we could go on and on. Others follow the Lord Jesus because they are looking for a crutch. Now, I'll be careful here. I need to be careful here. I do believe the Lord Jesus is concerned with my problems. I do believe wholeheartedly. I, I proclaim it, declare it this morning. The Lord Jesus is concerned about your problems. And when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance and we're made one with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus is is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That is true. The Lord Jesus is a great high priest who is able to empathize with our every weakness, who draws near and strengthens us for the journey and will see us through to the end. That is true. That is gospel truth. But But if the only reason I come to Christ or I follow Christ is because I think in Him I will find someone to help me with my financial needs, find someone to help me with my physical or family problems or other things. If that's my motive, pure and simple, we have missed the message of the Gospel altogether. We've missed the message of the Gospel entirely. I remember years ago sitting in a church and, and listening and hearing this preacher plead, plead with his congregation, just give Jesus a try. Just, just give Jesus a try. You've got such and such a problem. You've got such and such an issue in your life. Just, just give him a try. It almost sounded like I was being invited to take a truck for a test drive. You know, just try him on for size. When a, man, when a man is starving, you don't put food before him and ask him to taste test it. When a man is drowning, I mean going under, you don't throw him a life vest and say, check it to make sure it's your size. There are no questions asked. When a man, when a woman feels the weight of his, her sin. When a man or a woman feels the weight of of God's wrath and judgment. When a man and a woman is convinced that Christ is the true bread of heaven. They don't give Jesus a try. (laughs) They come running and they grab onto the Lord Jesus for all they are worth with every fiber of their being. And they will not let go. Why? Because they have found the answer to their greatest longing. Fellowship with the God from whom they had been estranged and alienated because of their sin. They have found someone who can deal with their sin. They have found someone who can wash them clean. They have found someone who can cleanse their conscience. 
They have found someone who can set them free and can clothe them with garments of righteousness before a righteous God. And they don't simply try Jesus on for size. No, they come and with every fiber of their being cling to Him. Simply to your cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. And yet all sorts of people today following the Lord Jesus without understanding what He offers. Why is it? That's an obvious question, right? But why is it, why is it that people misinterpret what it is Christ is offering, the gospel message? I think the answer is simply this. Until we understand the darkness of our heart, And until we understand the seriousness of our sin, we will never receive what it is Christ is offering. Uh, Years ago, I I remember watching, I think it was a documentary on sharks. Fascinating. And there was this one image, this one shot of of these sharks taken from a helicopter hovering above the water. I think in the Caribbean or somewhere down there. And the shot was of this this clear water and you could see literally hundreds of sharks swimming just a couple of meters below the surface. And then wouldn't you know it, all of a sudden, from one of the sides, a couple on a jet ski enter the shot, enter the image. They think it's rather cool. They start spinning around so so that the camera catches them, hooting and hollering, having a great time, completely oblivious. To what lay just beneath the surface? How many people go through life like that? How many people go through life like that? Can't see the obvious. Do not understand what it is they really need. Do not grasp the peril that their soul faces. And because they they fail to acknowledge the seriousness of their sin, they fail to receive the only thing that Christ is offering. The true bread of heaven. Forgiveness of sin and cleansing of conscience and peace with God. Now from all of that, let me leave you this morning with two what I hope will be valuable lessons. Two valuable lessons. Uh, The first is polemical. By that, I mean it's a little controversial. I don't think we can always shy away from controversy. Certainly not in the state the church is in today. At times, we need to just say it like it is. And so the first lesson is polemical. It is simply this. Listen carefully. Man will always flock to a man-centered Christ and a man-centered gospel. He will always flock to a man-centered Christ and a man-centered gospel. That's how we explain the crowds in John chapter 6. They're carnal in their thinking, man-centered in their heart's desires. And as long as they think the Lord Jesus is going to give them what they want, carnally speaking, they're prepared to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But the moment his real message hits home, 
the moment they perceive his real purpose, they're gone. They want nothing more to do with him. They want nothing more to do with the gospel he is declaring. Man will always flock to a man-centered Christ and a man-centered gospel. If we were to preach what people wanted to hear, Jesus loves you. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus wants to help you deal with your financial debt. Jesus always wants you to be healthy. Jesus wants to cure you of your every physical ailment. Jesus wants to solve your every problem. Jesus isn't really that concerned about your sin. He just wants you to do the best you can do. Jesus wants you to fill and realize a fulfilled life. Live a fulfilled life. If we were to preach that, we could fill a football stadium. Why? Because man will always flock to a man-centered Christ. And a man-centered gospel, how we must guard, guard against man's natural desire to twist Christ and the gospel. The second lesson is this. It's pastoral. Man will only and always cling to Christ when he sees that Christ is the true bread of heaven. Man will only and always cling to Christ when he perceives that Christ is indeed the true bread of heaven. I think it's Ray Comfort. I'm pretty certain it is. Ray Comfort who tells, who tells the story of two men who are on an airplane. And the stewardess approaches the first man and says, here's a parachute, put it on. Why? Why do you want me to put on a parachute? To which she replies, it will make the flight more enjoyable. Okay. So he puts on the parachute. It's big and it's bulky. He begins to sweat profusely. He's hot. He's uncomfortable. He can't lower his dinner tray in front. He can't eat. He can't sleep. He looks around. He notices that no one else is wearing a parachute. He's beginning to feel like a fool. He's beginning to look like an idiot. He's increasingly uncomfortable. And so in exasperation, he tears off the parachute and throws it from him. Then the stewardess goes to the second man and says, here's a parachute, put it on. To which the man asks, why? why? Why do you want me to put on a parachute? To which she replies, this plane is going to crash. He puts it on. It's huge, bulky, uncomfortable. He begins to sweat, can barely turn his neck, but he notices people are staring at him. People are looking at him like he's odd. Mothers are keeping their children away from him. Increasingly uncomfortable. And yet there is nothing in the world that will cause him to take off that parachute. Why? He's convinced he needs it. Do you get it? Until we perceive our need. And when we do perceive our need, we will flock to the Lord Jesus and cling to the Lord Jesus because He is the true bread of heaven. Pliable. Follows for a while and then turns back. Why? Is this the happiness you have told me of? The crowds follow the Lord Jesus for a while and then turn back. Why? What they wanted, he would not give. 
what he offered, they would not receive. Oh, let me ask you point blank this morning. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? And why have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? There is only one thing he is offering. Himself. The true bread of heaven. And forgiveness of sin and cleansing of conscience and peace with God. I trust this morning we are all on this journey for the right reason. The only reason that will see us safely to the end.